Welcome to the Being Human podcast, brought to you by Relate Malaysia. Join us in our conversations about what makes us human and why we think and behave in the ways that we do. We'll talk about mental health, emotional well-being, and how we can sometimes feel on top of the world, and other times like life calls for a large tub of ice cream and a big spoon. So come on in, relax, and let's explore this puzzle of being human together. Hello, my name is Dr. Chua Sokning, and recently I spoke to Professor Emmy von Dursen to discuss the topic of suicidality and to talk about the personal and social factors that contribute to suicidality, as well as acting on plans to carry out suicide. Emmy is a renowned existential philosopher, educator, and psychotherapist who founded the School of Psychotherapy and Counseling at Regents University along with the New School of Psychotherapy and Counseling at the Existential Academy in London. She has contributed several important ideas to existential therapy and has authored many books on the subject, her latest being Rising from the Existential Crisis, Living Beyond Calamity. As a student, Emmy completed two masters, one in philosophy and the other in clinical psychology. For her clinical psychology thesis, she wrote about attempted suicide and has since spoken widely on the topic of suicide and its contributing factors. As we began our discussion, I was curious to understand more about what the term existentialism means, and I asked Emmy to start off by sharing her thoughts on what it means to have an existential view of life. When I speak about something is existential, I just mean it is related to human existence. It's as broad as that. But in practice, in philosophy, it's a little bit more complex than that. So as far as I'm concerned, very early philosophies like um, the pre- pre-Socratics in, in Greece or Athens, I should say, and also some of the Eastern religions, you know, you see it in Taoism, you see it in Buddhism, um, are existential explorations. They are ways of making sense of human existence. They are attempts at enabling people to live their lives in a better, more constructive more communal, more caring, more loving, and happier way. So all of that, I think, is a resource for us to make sense of life and to get better at living it. But then, more specifically, I mean, Western philosophy forgot all about these existential concerns for many, many centuries Western philosophers became completely preoccupied with theories of knowledge. And, you know, Western philosophy really turned into uh, the sciences, the exact sciences. And most recently, it was sociology and psychology that split off from Western philosophies. But there was also a return to existential thinking in Western philosophy, which was forgotten by many, but was important in the 19th century with philosophers like Kierkegaard, a Danish philosopher, and Friedrich Nietzsche, 
And then with the important movement of phenomenology by Edmund Husserl, which then led to a new interest in existential thinking in the West, particularly through the theories of the French existentialists like um, Jean-Paul Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir and Albert Camus and Maurice Merleau-Ponty, but also in Germany through the work of Martin Heidegger and some of his other pupils, for instance, Hannah Arendt. So there are many existential philosophers in the West that brought back this thinking. But more recently, the movement of existential therapy, which has based itself in some of those philosophies, has become really an international movement where these different international influences, these many different cultural influences for this search of how to live a human existence in the best possible way, have created a sort of new passion for these ideas. And they're very relevant to psychotherapy because many people, when they have emotional or psychological difficulties, are actually struggling with life issues. And therefore, to bring all those resources together and put them at the disposal of people who are seeking help is a very important new way of doing things. And this way of doing things is now growing and growing and growing. We have a uh, World Congress for Existential Therapy once every four years, and many practitioners have joined in that, once in London, once in Buenos Aires, this year in Athens, to discuss these things and to compare notes on how we do things differently according to what our religions are, what our beliefs are, what our methods of working are, and what the particular local issues are for the people that we're working with. So it is very much about having a broad and in-depth approach to enabling people to overcome obstacles in their lives and get stronger at building their life in a way that is satisfactory and fulfilling. I noticed, you know, we're talking about psychotherapy, um, which I'm glad you brought it in, an existential psychotherapy. And what I noticed was you didn't mention illness or mental illness or, you know, so we're, we're very used now to thinking psychotherapy as a treatment. I mean, even if I put it as a negative experience, like these negative yes. things that I have that the person is experiencing. Yes. Um, but it seems like, it's, it's, so do we think existential ther- psychotherapy, is it a treatment for, mm-hmm. for illness or is it in a completely different camp, a different way of understanding? Because if, for mm-hmm. instance, cognitive behavioral therapy isn't focused on helping someone live well or live you know it what doesn't mean to be a human uh, a human being right the, the being part that Rollo May talks about uh, CBT is more interested in what are your goals now and let me help you achieve your goals you can and maybe it's just an ink part of of CBT it seems so different if that makes sense uh-huh. 
Well, this is a very, very good question, because that is pretty well the essence of the difference between an existential approach to therapy and that of most other approaches. So most other approaches to therapy see themselves as starting from what is wrong with the person, and they tackle what is wrong with the person very much through the psychology of that individual, and they locate the issues in what has happened to them in their past and what their personality is like, and they try to fix that person and see that person very much as an entity that is isolated almost, and the problems as happening in their brain and inside of them. Now, from an existential perspective, that may also come into it, but we see it in a much broader way. So we think the problems that arise in a person's life are usually not just about that person, but they are about that person in the context of their life, which means in relation to the family they grew up in, their relationship with their parents, obviously, but also their relationship to their siblings, to their wider family, to the history of that family, to the history of the culture they are in, to the cultural practices they are exposed to, to the institutions they live in, the schools they are schooled in, the universities they're in, the politics of the country, all of those things matter greatly. And also the beliefs that they have and the beliefs that other people have around them. And more than that, how we relate to the ontological givens of human existence. So how we relate to the challenges of life, the realities of life, which remain the same, no matter who we are, where we live, what we do. We're all born, we will all die, we all have to face the problems of our bodies, you know, having illnesses, having needs, like having to eat and drink and sleep. There are some givens that remain the same no matter who we are or where we are or when we are. But there are also lots of individual ways in which we deal with those. And there's also the fact that a lot of the time we are at a loss in relation to the things that happen to us. So an existential approach to that draws on philosophical ideas, sociological ideas, and many other sources, as well as psychotherapeutic ideas and techniques and psychological ideas and techniques. So it has a much broader array of tools and instruments and filters for working with the issues people bring. So it's quite revolutionary in that way. Because there's a universalism there. You talk about these universal experiences. We all brought whole, you know, my personal therapy, as I said, is with a bunch of Americans <laughs> in San Francisco, and yet we can relate on issues that go beyond culture, age, and gender. There are also these unique experiences that an individual faces. You talk about, you know, the family, the cultural context, their own 
you know, internal psyche as well as the interaction with the external environment. And then, you, you know, breaking it down because it is quite a complex theory and I'm trying to follow mm-hmm. it well, that you said ontological givens. And I was like, what is that? And I Googled it and it came no closer to an answer. So maybe could you just expand on that, what you meant by ontological givens. Okay, so ontology is the science of being. It is a philosophical concept. So many philosophers have investigated what it actually means to be. So that is usually approached, for instance, by the philosopher Heidegger or the philosopher Sartre by looking at how human beings are in the world, because that is the best way we have of figuring out what it means to be, what it means to be alive, what it means to have a consciousness, what it means to be able to engage with a given world, with a planet, with a universe, with the physical bodies of other people and our own physical body, with the objects in the world, with the actions we can take or must take, and to kind of systematically grasp what the challenges are that that brings to us. And we tend to look at those challenges in the way in which they are arranged in the world, that we can observe they are arranged in the world. So the very basic challenge is that of the fact that we are all born into the world as babies, and that is quite a big challenge to come into the world in such a vulnerable state and to be thrown, as it were, into our families and our cultures and our societies with very little equipment at our disposal and to have to learn for many years how we can make sense of the world and and, needing other people to help us with that If not, we cannot survive. But also to know that from the start, the fact that we are born also means that we will also die. So there is a certain given time that we have. And we don't know how long that time will be, but we do know that it is limited. None of us are capable of living eternally. We are all mortal and our time on the earth is measured, but we don't know how much we've got. So that means there is an inbuilt uncertainty in our lives. We do not know what is going to happen. We do not know when the end will come or when other things will come because we're also subject to fate. So things will happen in our lives out of the blue. We will have accidents or other people will die in our lives or you know there will be catastrophes. There will be a storm or there will be... Um, a flood or there will be a drought or things happen to us that are not within our control and that nevertheless challenge us greatly. So to understand what all of those issues are 
that create problems for people is to capture really most of the difficulties that put people into bad positions, into situations where they feel there's something wrong with them, but actually there's nothing wrong with them. There is something that has gone wrong in their lives and they weren't yet ready to deal with that. So when they can have this wider perspective on that and they can see what is known about how human beings can deal with that and how they can learn these new ways of being, then that shifts the way they experience their problems. They stop blaming themselves. They stop thinking that you know they're mentally ill and they start realizing that they're actually full of possibilities and full of new abilities that they haven't yet exploited or developed and that can allow them to make sense of things not just make sense of things but to understand so much more about their lives that they actually through their difficulties come to be more aware more able more connected up to the world and more vital there's an expansiveness in the experience rather than, than being very narrow and very locked down. Yes, I love what but you also, said, yeah. also realistically being aware of the limits. So it's right. also accepting always the limits. paradoxical thing. Yeah, accepting right. the limits and working with those, exactly. Right. I, you know, you, you mentioned some of the problems in living and, and Harry Stack Sullivan, um, there's a book on, supervisions with his students and that would always be the question he starts off with he trained a psychiatrist and they would give um, him all the symptoms and he says no no but what is what is this person's problems in living you know what are problems in living and, and from that perspective all of us can identify you know that you know, psychotherapy is not just for illness you know it's really trying to figure out a, or as you said a way of being bringing us back to you know, suicide. So we have this understanding how to live the science of being. And then you, we have certain individuals that seem to not want to be, you know, they want to be non-being. So from an existential perspective, what are some of the factors that lead might lead someone to think about an attempt suicide? Because often now it's, it's, you know, we quote the the stats that 90% of people who attempt, uh, attempt suicide or and their life by suicide have a mental illness. And we've talked a lot about how, you know, existentialism has a different view. Yeah. So when we say 90% of people who attempt suicide are mentally ill, that is not so much better than what we used to say, which was people who commit suicide have committed a crime and therefore you know, they should be, um, if, if they survive, they should be punished for it. Or um, if we thought about people who had committed suicide as people who should not be spoken about anymore in their families or who aren't entitled to being buried, as was the case in England, in the cemetery anymore because their religion would think they had sinned by doing that. Those are very damning ways of 
approaching those people who are most vulnerable and who have the the hardest lives and the most difficulty in finding a way through the obstacles. That is seems to me very unhelpful. And that's why from an existential perspective, we look at that as people who have lost the will to live because life has become obstructed and seems to be completely unattractive and meaningless to them. And therefore, they want to take the only option that allows them to take back some control and do something active, i.e. remove themselves from the world. And every single time I have spoken with people who have attempted suicide, which I have done a great many times in my 50 years, well, I'm cheating a little bit, in six months, it will be 50 years that I have worked as a psychotherapist. And during that time, I have worked a lot with suicidal people because I myself made two suicide attempts when I was a teenager. And that's why I did my research on that topic, because I wanted to really understand it. And every single person who I have spoken with in depth about their suicide attempts were people who were highly sensitive, highly aware and highly vulnerable. And in almost, not all, but almost all cases, they had encountered situations in their life, usually from very early on, where their sensitivity was not welcome, was stepped on, and they were treated by other people in dismissive ways by being bullied, or violence having been done to them, so they ended up feeling that there was no place in this world for their sensitive souls and that they would be better off in oblivion or wherever it was they would go in death. And of course, there's a difference when people attempt suicide if they believe that there is nothing after death or they believe they go to heaven or hell after death, or they believe that there are other things after death, such as the possibility, for instance, of reincarnation, or they have some other thought about where they might go after death. And all of that needs to be taken into account. And many a time, the person who attempts suicide does believe that if when they die, they will rejoin with people who did love them, or they will be relieved of their pain, and they may even be rewarded for the efforts they made, or they may be given another chance. And even those who believe, who are nihilists and believed in no God and in no nothing after death, they still came to a place in their life where things were so dark and so impossible seeming and so um, isolated usually that really nothing was preferable 
to the possibilities of a right. continued existence. There's almost, you know, in your description that, yes, they've lost the will to live here, but there's some, some hope of actually that this, this action will lead to a better outcome because this is Definitely. an intolerable Definitely. reality yes. for them now. It, it, they come to think that it is the better solution that the world would be better off without them and that there is a better world somewhere where they might finally find their place. That I've often come across that way of thinking. Any ideas why, you know, we've seen an increase in, in suicidality over the years, generally from public, uh, a public health perspective, there are many reasons. Um, but from an existential perspective, um, yeah. How is it that so many people have lost the will to live? And I think that idea, or you, you said, you know, that life is unattractive in itself is offensive because we take it personally. Like, I'm in your life. How can you find it unattractive? Am I not doing enough to make life palatable, to make life enjoyable? So we get offended at that concept. Um, but yet, you know, what's happening that so many people are reacting to to their reality um, by wanting to exit it. I think you've just asked the number one central question. What is happening to this world to make so many people all over the world, actually, inclined to take their own life rather than to live in these societies we have created? And I think we all know the answers, don't we? We can see that the world is not in a very good place. Through the media and the social media, we are confronted with so many difficulties, so much suffering, so many acts of violence around the world, such a lack of good values in the world that people become very easily despairing if they cannot create a world of their own in which they can live by their own values, the ones that they would like to live for and live with, then they want to step away. And I think the values that we do see in the world, even those of us who do want to live, are very depressing a lot of the time. People end up believing, and this, this is what people usually express when they're suicidal, you know, that the world is a mess, that the world is a bad place where the bad people win and where everybody tries to do you down, where everyone is competitive and where people are literally will stab you in the back and they will hurt you. And there is nothing to look forward to because that just gets worse and worse. And you, even though you work hard, you can never get comfortable. And, you know, there are 1% in the world who own most of the wealth of the world and the rest of us are being treated like slaves. Yeah. This is how people end up seeing it and feeling it. And, you know, I can go on about that for a little while longer. And if we don't watch out, we'll all get suicidal if we look at it that way. The reality is they're right. It's true. The question is, what do we do about it? Do we give up and top ourselves? 
Or do we find a way to live that makes a contribution to changing the world to the way we would like to see it? And the reality is, if we had all these people, these 800,000 people a year who kill themselves in the world, and we brought them together to be a movement for the improvement of the world, things might look up a bit because, you know, most of those 800,000 people who top themselves in the world every year are some of the best people in the world. So how come we allow that to happen? How come we don't have a safety net, safe places, sanctuaries where those people can actually develop themselves and be part of that change we need to see in the world. So we need to look at this very seriously. Why are we allowing some of these good people to become so despairing and so isolated? And what are we going to do about it? When you said this is, it, it is true, the, the negative view, my heart sank, but unfortunately you didn't end there. Because I think it, it is true, but it is not the only truth. And, and you know that's no. why you're saying that there is something else that doesn't negate the harsh realities, but it doesn't necessarily fully defining of your experiences. That there's a way to have a less depressing and possibly even happy on the experiences of joy and meaning in in this quite sad reality. That doesn't yes. deny that that reality, because I think a lot of time we are denying it. We're saying, no, 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 it can't be that bad. Because if we all accept that how bad things were, I think as you're saying, you know, I completely agree, we would all be quite depressed. The most you can of the see why people would kill themselves, yes. Right. And, you know, there are some very concrete things. So, for instance, um, Farmers in agriculture have a very hard time at the moment because, you know, they are constantly exposed to chemicals that are really bad for them. Um, they have lots of problems with the soil, with the water. You know, there is a real problem with nature and our, our people in agriculture, more than most people, kill themselves you know, more often than, than other people. And that needs looking at. Why is that happening? Well, because they are in a really bad situation. If we improve that situation, then we improve that rate of attempted suicide and suicide. So we do need to look at who are the people that end up killing themselves and why are they doing that? And it isn't because they have become negativistic. It is because they have ended up in a, a road that doesn't lead anywhere. And they feel there is no good possibility inside. And so we need to reorientate some of those people and engage them with the world in different ways. But the world itself also needs to want to open its eyes and see where it's going wrong and why it is creating so many dead-end roads for people all over the world. You know, you've already talked about what we can do as a society. Actually, in Malaysia, one of the few countries where suicide attempts is still 
a criminal act. And Are they? Yes. yes. It's meant as a deterrent, obviously not that successful. Mm. And I think what one of the concerns is it, if you remove it, I think people think, well, at least it deterred some people. <laughs> now, when you remove it, what, what else will we have? How will we be able to help people given our lack of resources, our lack of trained counselors? Um, from a public health perspective, can mm. existentialism um, be implemented? Absolutely. We, we need you know, a social care system which makes room for people in that situation. And we need a link between the worldview that comes from that negativity and the policymakers. We can't just have a worldview that caters to the people who are happy, clappy and doing well and making profits in the economy, which is how it's arranged in most countries now, except maybe in Bhutan. Um, but we can't we can't carry on like that. We're going to have to learn the lessons of the people who end up in the dead end street and who can tell us about what is wrong with the way the world is organized. We need to listen to that and we do need to reorganize the world and we do need to start valuing people in certain groups. So one thing I speak about from the heart straight away, as you probably know, that the highest rates of suicide everywhere always are in the over 70s. So some of those suicides are explained by the fact that when people get terminal illnesses, they become you know, more inclined to kill themselves. Now, that may be a slightly different situation. You know, maybe we we need to accept that, that if you have a very bad illness, then it's very difficult to want to carry on. And maybe that needs thinking about. But often people kill themselves in old age because they feel they're being discarded. They feel there is no more reason for them to live because nobody needs them. Well, that's completely idiotic, isn't it? Because our older generations, and speaking as somebody in, in her early 70s, I feel very much implicated by that. Um, the older generation has a lot of wisdom to hand out to the younger generation. It can also play a huge role in childcare and in mentoring the younger generation. But we just haven't got the societal structures for that to happen anymore. So older people are often isolated and therefore feel there is no more reason to live. So that is a real societal problem. And there are very few countries that are getting that right. And then yeah. the same um, is true for young men. You know, young men are also very high in their suicide rates. And we know what that is about because there has been research on that. And that is because they fear the violence around them and they fear that they're diminished and they're not up to that competitive way of life. And so they give up. Basically, they feel they're cowards. It's almost like they are in a war out there and they just don't feel it's for them anymore. 
So we need to find those more sensitive young men and see what they can contribute to the world rather than having the world being ruled by the people who can be most aggressive, most productive, most oppressive of other people. We need people who are willing to be more caring and more loving, and we need to make room for them so that our society has a much more, a much greater equilibrium. There needs to be lots of different sorts of ways of being, lots of different ways of life. And right now, certain ways of being are oppressed and suppressed, and others are very much favored. And like, you know, this is a, the image that came to mind is like using, right now we think individuals who are sensitive, we actually call them weak, we don't want to say sensitive anymore. It's almost like using their sensitivity as detectors. They could be basically a metal detectors of the world, you know, pointing us and showing us something to discover amount of yeah. realities rather than, rather than seeing this as a weakness it's their sensitivity it's the strength exactly of right right on the button absolutely correct you know even in psychology we do this we dismiss people who are sensitive as having high levels of neuroticism that's very weird that's, yes, it's, I think I'm guilty of that. I, I, yes. It's the medieval way of looking at the world, you know, right. distributing categories in that way yeah. and then making judgments about what is desirable and what is not desirable. Who says what is desirable? Look at all of the people. We like groups. We like creative. Anyone who has ever invented and created something is always in that category of high sensitivity. Anyone who has ever been an artist or an artisan or a craftsperson tends to be in that category. There are many creative people who come out very poorly in psychological tests. That should tell us something yeah. about what we're doing there, how we are judging people and, and how we are, mm-hmm. you know, missing out. We're missing out on the potential of a large part of our populations at a time well, we when need we badly need, need to them. rethink our assessments, right? Because our assessments that came yes. from clinical psych was really from world war. And we were trying to weed out the sensitive ones and the ones who could tolerate the destruction um, and the death um, and, yeah. and continue fighting. and, and But to continue it. using it as if that's a relevant and most useful way of understanding people. That's yeah. well, probably not you know, helping us grow. Our, yeah. our industries and our organizations are arranged very much like armies and warfare, aren't they? You need to be able to work all the time and you need to be able to achieve your best And you need to be able to push forward and stand up and be counted and be listened to and fight with your rivals and come out top and, you know, win the prizes and to be successful. But 
that's not how human life works. That's only a very small part of human life. I'm sure there is room for people who want to live like that, but to create our whole culture around that is obviously not working out very well. So on the individual level, if we if we know of someone who is feeling suicidal, who is feeling lost in life and, and mm. not finding life attractive, What's the best way we can support them? If we we're not if we're not existential philosophers, you know how? Hmm. But how could we come along hmm. and help them in in in, in a in a useful yes. way? Yes, as ordinary people, right? So they they need lots of different things. They need to be secured. They need to know that there is a safe place for them to be, where they can spend some time to think about what's going on. And to have somebody they can talk about those things with. And that should be somebody who is tolerant of their worldview for a bit and who takes time to understand how that worldview has been arrived at and who can help them slowly tilt that in a direction where they begin to see that they are needed, that their life is important, that they precisely because they see this so clearly, have an important contribution to make to the future of the world. And that together with them, you can start looking at what organizations or groups they could belong to for them to find themselves with like-minded people, with other people who will respect and value their sensitivity and who will help them find ways in which they can be of worth again, and they can do something for others, and they can experience the exhilaration of discovering new things and discovering new relationships and discovering love. And of course, that is one of the big things that is missing. I mean, what's usually missing for the people who kill themselves is A, a sense there is a place in the world for them and they can earn their living doing something that is in line with their values. And two, whether there is another person in the world for them who will appreciate them for who they are and who will be able to understand them and be with them in a sort of kinship way where it will feel good and loving and caring. So if they can find those things, a path towards a useful career and a path towards a good relationship, they will be fine. It's about belonging. It's about our connectivity to the world. So that's physically about having safe spaces in which to, you know, develop new skills and a new profession. It is socially about relationships and finding accommodating organizations or institutions. It is personally about working out a sense of identity where their identity is not put down and looked at in a denigrating way, but in an appreciative way and developing aspects of themselves that are great. And it is also spiritually about believing in certain values and having faith 
that those values are welcome and that there are ways where those values can thrive in the world and where they can make those values more important in the world rather than feeling crushed by the values of the world, which they see as negative. You and I come from very pragmatic, very practical societies. Mm. Um, you know, it, it's less about the emotion. And I think often the question that I receive is like, but how, yes, I, I think they focus on what you said first. Yes, useful career. <laughs> They're going to be useful in life. And then they, they forget that first they need that space to be, you know, that, that space to figure things out. And, and we have to find a way to, to also tolerate their, their lostness without sinking ourselves, you know, the, tolerate their exploration. I remember when I was depressed, I had all these questions about the world and just flopping between, you know, anger and like, why is it like that? And, why doesn't anyone care? And, exactly. And being very grateful. But then I had, and then at the same time, it was sort of ranting way. I, I could also see that people were frustrated, but kindly and patiently tolerating it, you know, because I'm telling them, nobody cares while they're listening to me, which was the, oh, the greatest irony. But, but they gave me that space to even exactly. have that message out there and to yep. figure that out. So, yeah. I would say, yeah, I really like that point. Yes, and so and, encouraging and, yeah, people to express themselves is hugely important. Not shutting them down, but letting them to express in words what it is they're struggling with. That's really important. And, you know, many, many people get through it by arts, by the arts, you know, by learning to paint and express it in paintings or by writing and learning to do creative writing or sculpting or any anything that allows them to be with something other than people and get some of it off their chests. That is usually extremely helpful. And when I said finding a useful career, I didn't mean, you know, become somebody who works hard from nine to five. That could, for some people, be something completely alternative. You know, some of the people I've worked with have found amazing careers for themselves I didn't even know existed, like doing therapy with animals any careers with animals tend to be very good for sensitive people. And there are lots of careers with animals out there. So that's one way to go. Any careers in nature tend to be very good for people in that situation. So working in the woods and the forests or, you know, working in, in with plants or flowers or there's so many alternative pathways that people are just not thinking about or working with the weather you know uh, becoming a meteorologist there, there's some amazing careers people have found for themselves that have brought the meaning and that have allowed them to be in a completely different environment than the environment that have crushed them Absolutely. And, and you know, thank you, Amy. Like this, I really have enjoyed our conversation and I keep wanting to go on more. I want to end on this. And this is really out to the listeners, you know, to anyone who's going through an existential crisis and, and feeling like life isn't attractive and sort of feeling lost and they can't go on. Is there a message that you could give them 
to give them a sense of hope, or, you know, just, just a sense that perhaps there is something that they could do other than ending their life. Yes, definitely. Just remember that life is much bigger than you and it is much bigger than what you have discovered it to be to date. Take time. Don't be hasty about this decision because you can always still take your life if it all turns out to go wrong. But I assure you that most people, if they give themselves another five years or another 10 years and then go on a path of discovery of where the good people are and where the good jobs are and where the things are that you can make a difference to and figure out how you can help the world to become much more like you would like it to be, I assure you, you will find your life meaningful. And we need you because we know you are probably a very good person who has come across some very bad situations. It's definitely not your fault. And you'll figure it out. Go look at some of my videos on YouTube. I got a video on suicide, especially for people in your situation. Listen to that again. I might do another one very soon. So come find me and find some of the other good people who are struggling just like you are. You're not the only one. You're not alone. Together, we can sort it out and find a new path, which is what you need. Thank you so much, Emmy, for, for joining me today and talking about this, this topic. I, I myself found it very meaningful and challenging, you know, just the way that we think about things and, and bringing together a lot of ideas and experiences that I've been having recently. So I really appreciate you spending your time and, and talking us through how existentialism can give us a way of understanding human experiences but also provide us a way then to keep living and finding life beyond what we see uh, with our eyes. And that's very much about finding your existential courage. And that is something that we can learn to do to become more courageous. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to this episode of Being Human. We'll be hosting guests on a regular basis. So be sure to tune in for some more insights on how we can understand ourselves better and learn to live a life on our own terms and one that's meaningful to us. My name is Dr. Chuasa Kning, and I look forward to sharing some more valuable insights from the world of mental health with you very soon. Thank you for listening to the Being Human podcast. To find out more about Relate Malaysia's online therapy services, visit us at www.relate.com.my or email us at inquires at relate.com.my. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, remember, we are all more human than we are otherwise. Be kind to yourself and take care.